Hello, everybody. In the parable of the sower, there are four categories that the Lord gives in that parable, famous parable, and the, the last category is the good soil. The good soil is where the, the seed actually produces fruit, and in the other categories, there is no growth or really fast growth, and then it dies away. Uh, We often think of this parable in terms of our own soul, but I I wonder if we do think of it in terms of a church or the condition of a church, and that's how I want us to think about it today. The soil, or as I title it, the dirt that's in the church, (laughs) and that's us. We're the dirt in the church, and are we good dirt or not? In the parable... The first seed, the first category of seed gets eaten up by the birds. That would be a church that has no gospel, no, go- no Bible teaching at all. Uh, it could be uh, like a Jehovah's Witness church or something like that. In the next part of the parable, the seed falls upon the rocky soil, and that soil has no depth to it, so it rises up quick and then it dies away. And that's like a church that has the gospel or has some teaching, but has really no depth of teaching. It's just very, very superficial, and everything else is either programs or singing or what have you, social justice and stuff like that. Very, very thin soil. The other seed, the third one, is where the seed falls among the thorns. And Christ likened the thorns to the worries of the world, deceitfulness of riches, and the pursuit of other pleasures. And I would imagine this is the church where the Bible is taught, but not the whole Bible. Things are not taught that are you know, unpopular. You know, if you want to fill your seats and you want everybody to feel good, you don't teach about holiness. You don't teach about consequences for sin. You don't teach about not pleasing God and the consequences for that. You don't square up with people about what it means to fear God and that we're all commanded to fear God. The responsibility of the believer to live holy and sanctified and so on. We can ignore those and teach God loves you, God forgives you, you know, go uh, live long and prosper, as Spock would say. So for a church to be an environment where all the Bible is taught, uh, that is an environment where, and everything in the Bible is encouraged, nothing is missed, right? We just, we teach from the literal scripture, it's inspired, we know this, we teach all the word as it comes straight from the mouth of God. This becomes a church that's an environment for biblical learning and an environment for spiritual growth. And it's not just the teaching, though. It's the people. You could have great teaching and everybody rejects it. You could have great teaching and nobody really applies it. You could have great teaching and nobody does anything. Uh, So in our lesson today, Paul is going to show us how to build and maintain a a church that has good dirt in it so that the fruit grows. And that's in our passage in 1 Thessalonians 5. So let's start with prayer. Let's thank God for 
time we have to hear his word, to learn this topic of how we are to be in the church amongst one another and, and individually in our relationship with God so that we create an environment in the church that is prosperous for all of our growth. And so with that, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time that we have to hear your word. We are always grateful for your word. We do not take it for granted. We know that every word in your scripture is inspired by you, that the Bible is sufficient, that it is complete, that we need know nothing else than what you have revealed in your inspired scripture. And so as we turn to this passage today, Father, we Seek your wisdom and guidance and counsel through God the Holy Spirit that we may all be prospered by it and increased by it. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So our theme in this passage, and it, it's uh, we're just going a little bit farther than we did yesterday. And so it's quite similar and overlaps quite a bit with yesterday. Is the attitude of love and thankfulness in the church that will provide an environment for spiritual growth. Uh, And this, at the beginning of chapter 5, and you can turn there, that's where we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The main passage that we're tackling now is verses 12 through 22. Uh, And chapter 5 starts with the fact that the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. And nobody's going to expect him. So when he comes, even we as believers, we don't know the day or the hour. We're going to be caught off guard. Uh, I don't know how we wouldn't. Uh, And But when we realize what's going on, which I would assume for all of us would happen in, in a moment, that we'll know that we're in the rapture, that it's actually happening. I, I can't imagine it. But we will all rejoice in that. And Paul says, why? It's because we're sons of the day, sons and daughters of the day. And the day of the Lord is a day of light. Now, a lot of people get judged over the course of what the day of the Lord is. And for them, it's not a fun event. Uh, fun, Not fun doesn't even approach the situation for them. But... Uh, for us it is, and therefore it's called the day. It's not called the night of the Lord. It's the day of the Lord. For us, it's something of rejoicing. And and so Paul says that since it's going to happen at any time, that we should be alert and sober. Sober spiritually, alert spiritually. And this means uh, because we're sons of day that we don't have to fear anything about the day of the Lord. His wrath is not coming upon any believer but since he is our life, and he is, that when he returns, we want to be seen by him doing what he wants us to do, what he has willed us to do, which is the, the will of the Father, just like he followed it. And so this, what Paul will now roll into, is the will of the Father for the church. And he's, uh, he's going to talk about us individually. He's also going to talk about us as a group. And how we help one another and deal with one another. And also uh, warn one another. Uh, sometimes our, our service to one another is, is not 
you know, it, that it has a warning to it or an admonishment. But we want to be seen by our Lord doing what he has willed us to do. And so we need to know what is the will of the Father? What is the will of the Father for me? And, you know, he's coming at any time. Right, so and when Paul says this, can you feel the how Paul is, you know, saying, "Look, don't be like those who say, oh, 'Oh, I'll get to it.' You know, the will of the Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's important. I'll get to it. But you know, I've got, I'm busy. I got other stuff to do today. I'll get to it tomorrow. But <clears throat> we don't know when he's coming back. I mean, he come back. He could come back today. And hence, there's this." motivation of, uh, of, you know, that there's no time to waste. As Paul says at the end of that passage, uh, I think at verse 11, whether we're dead or alive, wake, awake or asleep, dead or alive, that we're all going to be united together with the Lord. And that means in our resurrection bodies, and that means in perfect unity, and all of us are going to be Holy, blameless, through and through, right? Sinless, uh, no barriers, no conflicts, nothing. We're all going to be together with the Lord. And then Paul takes us from up there, and we imagine that day. I mean, resurrection bodies, all of us is no conflict, no marriage. Marriage is gone from the earth. So, right, it's like, we are all united to Christ, and all of us one to another, it's magnificent. In fact, the, the scripture indicates that the angels will marvel at such a sight, as will we. It's something that the Lord also longs for, for that day. So we're up there, but then Paul takes us back down to earth. He always does this. The Lord does this too. And I always, when I think about this concept, I think of, uh, when the Lord took Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration and he showed them his resurrected self along with Moses and Elijah. And they're blown away by it. But then they have to go back down the mountain and get back to work. And the same happens to us continually. That our thoughts and our dreams go to heaven and they should. I don't know how many times that I have become kind of oppressed by things here on earth and then when I think of my life in heaven and that this is very temporary that it takes all that oppression away but we can't live there not yet meaning in experience so Paul describes therefore what this perfect unity we're all together with the Lord what this perfect unity looks like in the church now and if it's to look like it is now, and Paul's going to describe this, and he's going to use words like, he's not going to say, hey guys, I know you're all sinners, and I know you don't really all get along, so if you could just try and make it work, I don't know, half the time, three quarters of the he doesn't use any language like that. He uses language like always, every, amongst everyone, always constantly and the challenge to this is obvious it's the people that's the problem with the church is the people (laughs) 
we're, uh, we're not made perfect. Our sins and our flaws cause problems in the church. We have to overcome them through faith. We do, but even for those of us, when I say us, I'm not going to even include me, but for, for whoever overcomes, and we're all called to, of course, to overcome our flaws and our sinful lifestyles, we still sin from time to time, and we're still going to let each other down. The key to this is to sanctify the Lord in your heart. First uh, Peter 3.15 says, Set the Lord aside in your heart. That's what sanctified means. And when you set the Lord aside in your heart, you're every day reminding yourself, I am the Lord's. I have to walk in this. I have to live in this. This is my destiny. This is my plan. This is my election. This is my predestination. This is what I must do. And there's no... You know, there's no trick to it. Know what you got to do and do it. I say, well, you know, wait a minute. You know, what is the, t- there's no trick. If you set your mind to do it by faith, you know, and we have to know this too, and Paul's going to make an issue of this, that God the Holy Spirit is within us to make it happen. So if we say, you know what, I am determined, I have to do the will of the Father. And I set about my life to do that will. I will be empowered to do it. That is it. There's no fancy theology wrapped it. You can wrap a lot of fancy theology around it. I think it detracts from it. I am a lover of theology. I really am. But I, when it comes to application in life, believe me, I'm not thinking of theologians, generally. <laughs> when, I, when I think in the moment, like of my life, when I'm in the moment and I have to think a certain way or change the way that I'm currently thinking, I think of this Bible. I think of Scripture. I'm not thinking about what Dr. So-and-so says about it. But they help us. They help us understand what's in here because they've done a lot of work on it. But we don't worship them. We worship Him. And that's what a believer who has a limited knowledge of the Scripture yet applies it to their lives is far better off spiritually than a theologian who doesn't really apply all that wonderful knowledge that he has. It's imperative that we live this. And that's what Paul's going to get at here. He's going to use big... The, uh, I don't want to pick on theologians too much anymore. Be, uh, you know, uh, that could come back to bite me. But um, how about rejoice always? That's it. That's, that's his sentence. It's two words. The word for rejoice, karete, and always, uh, oh, I've forgotten the word. I know what it is. Uh, something panta. <laughs> but it, it's, <laughs> I have a vocab test tomorrow. It's my last one. My last Greek vocab test probably ever is tomorrow. And I better, pantote, that's what it is. See? It's, it's in there on a neuron. Make sure I don't kill any brain cells before tomorrow. So, um the Paul is going to throw at us that karete is a command. Rejoice. He doesn't say, hey, you know, guys, it would be great if you were happier. No. He says rejoice. He throws it at us with the authority of God. And how often, Paul, should I rejoice? Always. And it becomes 
uh, a command that we must abide by. And, uh, and if we're not always happy and joyful, then there's something wrong with our spiritual lives. And we need to figure that out. If you don't know there's anything wrong, then how are you going to set about fixing it? Because here, the thing that God is certainly showing to us all through the Scripture is that he is a God of change. He, not of himself, he never changes, but of us, conforming us, growing us, increasing. Those words are used a lot in which we're changing. And as we change, uh, we see more and more. And I think as we change, our acceleration of change increases. You know, there's, a, there's a change and then there's a rate of change. A change can be uh, like a flat uh, curve, like a velocity curve. Uh, let me get myself, I haven't taught physics in a hundred years, but uh, you know, if you're going the same speed, you're, you're going at the same velocity, it's when you accelerate that your velocity increases or decreases. And when you accelerate, you go faster and faster and faster and faster. So as your foot's on the gas pedal, you go faster. You're not going at constant speed anymore. Spiritual growth can be a constant growth. But I don't think it is stays like that for very long. If you grow, you start because your knowledge grows exponentially that, and you apply more, that grows ex- exponentially, that you start to accelerate in the spiritual life. And instead of a gradual growth, see, you could grow very little for years and years and years, and then all of a sudden something happens. Like, bam, the lights go on. It's, it's really an awakening. I think that's why a lot of old theologians called it like a second blessing and like they they probably really did feel like they got the holy spirit for the first time but they didn't because the holy spirit's not a feeling they always had the holy spirit it's just that the lights went on because what you kept learning and learning and trying and applying and groping and trying and failing and failing and (laughs) and you kept trying and all of a sudden you said you know what i think i get it and then this body and this life. I said, why have I been living for myself all this time? This is his life. And you th- start to throw it over to him. And the acceleration begins. See, you could grow very little for years. And then when it hits. That's why God you know, we can't judge people. We, sh- we can. We do. But we shouldn't judge anybody for their growth rate. Because it can happen in a moment. The light goes on. It happens for people when they hit rock bottom sometimes. But you don't have to hit rock bottom to get it. It's just a something. And God knows when that something is going to happen. And your growth will accelerate. Now, if we've created a church where those who have accelerated in growth Look at the weak, and they say, you loser, I cannot believe you still struggle with those sins. I cannot believe that you don't get it. And, you know, you've already forgotten that there was a time when you didn't get it. You've already forgotten that there was a time when you struggled mightily with sins and that they ruled your life. And there you are judging someone. If we do that, we don't create an environment where everybody can grow. 
And that's what Paul's going to get at here. <clears throat> you know, in, in some like uh, organizations, the leadership is kind of like the in-club. There was a time in the church that I was in where there was an in-club. And if you got to the in-club, well, man, you were in. I remember being told that if I just did certain things, I could get in. And you know how enticing it was? Very, very. I heard someone say this about a, a certain president who, uh, I won't say who, uh, but, you know, he, because I might mess up the story and get the facts not straight. But I, I do remember this person who, it was a historical situation that they knew all about, where this president was getting people onto his agenda by inviting them into the club. And basically all you had to do was close the door and say, we're in and you're out. And the people who are out, you know, they don't even know if it's better if you're in. They just want to get in. It's hilarious. And you can create that in a church, right? It's hard to do it here. It's the blessing of smallness. <laughs> you're an in crowd. You're like the in of two. And nobody wants to get in anyway. Because there's only two of you. You know, we, we are the in crowd. There's only one in here. There's a blessing in that. But it can be created in the church. The leadership doesn't work. They think they should be worked for. But the leadership has to work the hardest. It's the way it is. I've seen it too. I've seen the leaders be like, you know what? People don't do this for me. They don't do that for me. They don't respect me. They don't do this, that, and the other. I remember I saw once a pastor carrying his own laundry and he made a crack about how he had to carry his own laundry. Like, what are you, the king? Are you the queen? <laughs> do you call the servants? All right, carry your own laundry. But that, that becomes, I mean, we've seen it. And so what happens is what, the things that happen in the world sneak into the church because it's a body of people who are sinners. But we have a law above us all. And that law is what Paul speaks of here. Paul describes what perfect unity looks like in the church now. Despite the fact, and he's going to list uh, various categories of believers who are in different conditions. We'll see them here in a second. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, prolific writer, theologian, pastor, there he is, handsome man, Scottish. Uh, and anyway, he writes this in his uh, commentary about this letter, 1 Thessalonians. He says, the Christian community is to be a little welfare state. And, you know, for those of us, we're conservatives, right? We see welfare state and we're like, come on now. You know, we're grumpy, get grumpy at it. But in the church, most definitely. Not the state. The church. We give. Someone's in need, we give. That's the way it's supposed to be. I say, well, you know, they're... How do I know they're going to use it right? That's not, uh, that's not up to you. Give, give, give. The Christian community is to be a little welfare state, a society practicing mutual aid among its members in spiritual and material aspects alike. 
we're not just give, as Bruce points out here, uh, truly, we're not just giving each other uh, material things. We're giving each other spiritual things. And that's actually what Paul makes an issue out of here. He'll make an issue out of material things in other passages, but in this passage, it's spiritual. So look at verse 12. Verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate, and remember this word was know, that you know those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly. That's a very strong word. It means superabundantly. In love, because you have to love them, because of their work. Not because of their title, not because of their personality, but because of their work. Alright, so here we have the relationship between the leader and the congregation. The leadership, I should say. It's not just the pastor. Some churches have multiple pastors. I don't see anything wrong with that. Um, as long as it's organized properly. Uh, there's deacons and so on, administrators. There's different levels of authority. And those people who are in authority toil. As Paul says it clearly here. They diligently labor. That's a word for toil. And they uh, have charge, which uh, means to uh, lead, protect, and care for. And then give you instruction, which is the word for admonish. Uh, which is to instruct. Absolutely, it means to instruct, but it also means to warn people when they need to be warned. So getting back to that parable of the sower, the, the seed that fell amongst the thorns, if the church is filled with thorns, that's a place that doesn't warn people. You know, do people like to be admonished? Like uh, <clears throat> All Scripture is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, it's profitable for instruction, for reproof, and for correction. Who likes to be reproved and corrected? Fortunately, for us as believers, it's not a person who's doing so. I still have a problem with people correcting me. I should be past that by now, but it's still something i got to work on. Uh <laughs> I sent, I sent a, a sample of a project I got coming up for school. I sent it to my professor, and I, I thought it was pretty good. And, I, I, you know, I knew it needed work, but I thought it was pretty good. I said, can you look this over for me and see where I'm at? And he sent it back to me, and he tore it up. He just, it was bad, you know. And I was miffed all day. <laughs> well, not all day. For hours. It was hard to get off my mind. And I was being corrected by a person. And he's right. He's absolutely right. If, if we don't accept that, and I mean from someone who knows, right? that person, that professor who's been a professor for like 1,800 years, is, I shouldn't say that, he's, he's about to retire, but uh, he's been a professor for a long time. He knows. He's pastored a church for decades, as well as being a professor. He knows. And it's someone I should listen to. You know. But pride says, I don't want to. Mostly, though, in the church, you're being corrected and reproved by God. You know, not the pastor. But sometimes, because you see here in verse uh, 12 that they give you instruction, that means that they reprove. And let's see it, because Paul uses the same verb again now in verse 13. He says, because now he switches to the congregation as a whole. So he starts in verse 12. 
as the leadership in the congregation, there's an easy uh, uh, opportunity for there to be division there. Those who have authority and those who are under their authority, there's always an opportunity for, for conflict. So he deals with that, that the congregation should esteem their leaders and the leaders should work their tails off for their congregation. Right? And if that's true, there'd be no conflict. Now, moving on to the whole congregation, we have live in peace with one another. There's really two words there. Actually, there's three. There's a preposition. But it's be at peace, which is one word, and it's a command. Be at peace, uh, I think it's ice or in, in yourselves. So it really means amongst yourselves. So it's be at peace amongst yourselves. In English, we kind of expand it a bit. Live in peace with one another. It's a fine translation. Now go to the end of verse uh, 14. Right? Live in peace is at the end of verse 13. At the end of verse 14, be patient with all men. And I, like, I, I see these as two bookends. Live in peace with one another. That means all of us. Be at peace with one another. And then the last one, live, uh, sorry, be patient with all men. And it truly means all men, all people. Be patient. So this tells us that living in peace is not always going to be easy. Because if it were easy, when would I need patience? Patience is hard. Now, fill in the blank. Blank is patient. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Something is patient. Something is uh, kind. Something does not. It's love, okay? So, love is patient. We have love for one another. We're patient with one another. We're rooting for one another. But notice in verse 14 now. So, between these two bookends, live in peace with one another, be patient with all men. We have three categories of people who are in different conditions. The first one are the uh, disobedient. He says in verse 14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. That's the same word as instruction in verse 12. <clears throat> admonish means to warn them. And the this is obvious in context because unruly means disobedient. Now, is this just for the leadership? So is it only for the pastors, for the deacons, that they should admonish the unruly? It does not. It is not. It's for all of us. Now, for some, they might be saying, oh, that's awesome. I can't wait to admonish somebody. That would be a poor motivation. <laughs> you know, I can't wait to tell somebody that they're wrong. Uh, again, all of this is done in love by the Holy Spirit. But anyway... It says in verse 14, we urge you brethren, right? That's the whole congregation, not just the leaders. We urge you brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted are those who are destitute, beat down by life. They might, for whatever reason, it might be a health issue. It might, be, it might even be a sinful issue. No, we're not to throw them out of the church. Maybe they need to be admonished and comforted. It's not that these categories can't overlap in people. And that those who are generally doing the admonishing, which would be the stronger believer, 
might become unruly at times and need the admonishment themselves. Someone who is not faint-hearted and who is comforting someone who is may find themselves being faint-hearted in the very near future and need comfort themselves. And so all of us are going to fall into these categories from time to time. The, the issue is not who is in the category and, you know, can we determine that. It's that it's what we do for one another. I, if you love me, you'll have the guts to say, Joe, this might go wrong for you. You might be on the wrong path here. I think maybe you should consider something. And, you know, and my response to that might be, go to hell. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's my problem, and that would be a terribly wrong response. Uh, I might be faint-hearted. You know, I need comfort. And in a day, you can be beaten down. Something happens where it feels like you're getting crushed by life. What are we to do? Suck it up? What did I say yesterday? Suck it up, buttercup? There's a lot of people in the world that that's, that's, their, that's their spiritual gift. <laughs> By the way, it's not a spiritual gift. It's a joke. But it's to tell people to suck it up. And that is, I don't find that in the Scripture. If that is the case, you need to self-evaluate. Look, all of us. And what are we doing? We're building an environment where the weak, the strong, the faint-hearted. I love this word faint-hearted means small-souled. It's oliga, oligar, it's uh, oligos, I think it is, where we get the word oligarchy from. It means rulership uh, of the small over the many. uh, and it, sorry, it's the Greek word, it's a compound word, it's small-souled. There's another word, not in the Bible, there's a mega-soul. This is alaga-soul, alaga-suke. There's a mega-suke, but it's not in the Bible. It's used by Aristotle and other Greek writers. So there's a mega-soul and there's a little-soul. And mega-soul in Greek would mean someone who's strong, strong of heart. Uh, the Bible would call that mature. The mature can comfort the faint-hearted and love to do it. Uh, there are some who want to push the faint-hearted down more. I guess because it makes them feel better or bigger. Uh, then we have help the weak. And weak uh, would mean weak spiritually. It could be a brand new believer, could be a believer who hasn't really gotten with it, uh, with the message, but is now trying. Uh, And what are we to do? Uh, Help is a word that means support. I think we put all these on the board yesterday. Then be patient with all men. So, when you're admonishing, comforting, supporting, you need to be patient. Yeah, and this means that if you've supported someone who's weak and you say, all right, I've supported you five minutes ago, what's your problem? Get with it, dude. Now I'm back to the suck it up guy. Uh, you know, like, be patient. They may need support for a while. Uh, people may be need to be admonished. Most of us who need admonishment do not respond after one admonishment. 
It has to happen multiple times. If we admonish, we do it in love. We also comfort. We also support. That is the church. So it should be obvious to all of us that for this to be true, we have to love one another. And Paul will write that in Colossians, that love one another, where he actually says to put on love, to wear love like a garment, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. We are to love one another. We're to care for one another. And that we could only be so loving and noble, right? And this is, if I'm an, and by the way, this is always, right? Always be patient with everybody. Always be at peace. Always be thankful. Always be rejoicing. How in the world am I going to do that except by the power of God? Paul is now, after, right after this sentence, he's going to say, don't quench the Spirit. And <clears throat> we need the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to do this. So, you know, is there a switch by which I turn on the Holy Spirit? No, there is not. You do God's will. Know God's will. Do God's will with faith that God is going to make it happen. The Spirit will make it happen. There's no procedure here. We don't find it in the Scripture. It's go and do. And if we do, by faith, the Holy Spirit will empower us. If we say, hey, God, no thank you. I don't want nothing to do with you. I'm going to be good on my own. Then you're on your own. God, the Holy Spirit, does not empower people in independence. Uh, I don't mean the town. uh, But anyway, God, the Holy Spirit, does not empower people who seek independence from him. When we seek dependence upon him and to do his will, God the Holy Spirit will make it happen. And we trust him for that. Now, next Paul rolls into the fact that we all, and again it's brethren, we need to regulate conflict. Conflict is going to happen. Why? I love how Paul says, look, conflict's going to happen in your church. It's just going to happen. So look at verse 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. Now, if evil never came up in the church, this would be unnecessary, but obviously it does. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. And so what we have here is a retaliation. Is there a retaliation? Absolutely. But someone gives you evil, and obviously he's talking to the church, right? So this, he's being specific about people in the church. And they're going to do something against you. Why would they do that? They're sinners. Why would they do that? Well, maybe they're one of the weak. Why would they do that? Maybe they're the faint-hearted right now, and they lashed out. Because when we're weak and beaten down... And despairing, well, we sin more easily, don't we? Do you snap at people more easily when you're, like, tired and you are under pressure? Most definitely. And so why would? So here's the thing, that when we're given evil, we take that. I mean, I guess in a way you could say thank you very much. That would be awesome if we had the attitude to say, well, thank you. You, know, you big jerk, thank you. Uh, And then we give back what? Good. Notice this quote here. 
I, I never heard, I never read this before, and I, I found this in one of my commentaries. It was ascribed to Jesus by the early writers in the first few centuries of the church that he said, become approved money changers. Now, no one knows if that's true or not, but it's the point is very well taken. And the fact that we can assume, or not assume, but imagine that it comes from Christ kind of makes it even a little better. <clears throat> uh, become approved money changers is a way of saying, when I'm given evil, I'm going to take that and I'm going to exchange it for a different currency. And that's why I put this, that is actually the coin that likely that the, the Pharisees handed to Jesus when they said, should we pay, well, they didn't hand it to him, but they said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And they were trying to trap him. And he said, get me a coin. And he said, whose image is on that coin? And that's Tiberius. That was the emperor at the time of Jesus's life. And, and <clears throat> there he is. And he said, give, that's Caesar. And he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. And you see, what com when someone does evil against you, that's Caesar. Meaning Caesar at the time is a personification of the king of the world. Right? And that's the world. But when Christ came into the world, he turned the world upside down. The ruler would not be Caesar, but the ruler, the greatest among you, would be the servant, the youngest, the youth. The the uh, the humble would be the servant, uh, the servant of all, and that would be the greatest. So he turned the whole thing upside down. So when we're given this coin, which I would represent here as someone does evil against you, or someone does, and, and this is biblical, right? This is God's and Christ's mind that we're all called to. And when Christ returns, do we want him to see us? Do we want him to see us dealing in that currency? And if we're dealing in that currency, we're giving evil for evil. You give me Caesar, you're going to get Caesar right back with a punch in the face, right? It, you give me Caesar, I'm going to shoot it right back at you. But instead, you give me Caesar, I give you Christ. I'm a money changer. So this is a part of the means of protecting the church, the church that is full of good soil. It provides an environment where people can grow. So imagine you're the, the person who, who gave the Caesar coin. You did evil to someone and they threw you out of the church. Or you got ostracized. That's it for you, right? At this church, you feel comfortable coming back? Do you feel comfortable that people are forgiven you? I met a guy, he, doesn't, he goes to a different church, obviously. You, you'd know him if he came here. But I, I met a guy who, uh, he did some pretty bad things, like crime um, crime, felony type crime to people that were in the church. And then his eyes opened. He had an awakening. He became born again and saved. And he joined. And, you know, where else is he going to go? That's his church. It's where his parents went. And, <clears throat> and everybody in the church forgave him. And he really couldn't believe it. 
and now he's an evangelist. So what if he wasn't forgiven? Right? He would have been kicked out. What we're, what we're experiencing here, what Paul is writing about, is a church environment in which there's good soil. And that is a place where if somebody in the church... Now look, if they need to be dealt with and disciplined and admonished and so on, sure. But all of us forgive. All of us forgive. Um, yeah, let's do that. Let's go to Romans 12. At least we can... Let's read a different passage and then we'll come back. Look at Romans 12.9. Now, no, uh, Paul's going to use uh, identical words in this passage for the passage we just read, which was, don't repay evil for evil but give uh, a blessing instead. What am I doing? Seek that which is good for one another. And uh, verse 9 says, let love, we'll read the context of the passage. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be to vote, be to vote. <laughs> uh, learn how to read. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Paul is a master of run-on sentences. It astounds me. As, uh, this, this year, we're, uh, ex- we exegeted uh, Colossians. And uh, so we looked at all the Greek in Colossians and all the sentence structure. took all semester to do it. <laughs> and you can, it's just amazing. He would get a solid F on his, on his English or Greek papers uh, in, in any university now. But So what does he have here? Wait, notice it's one thing tagged on to another. It's like a list. It's very much like a laundry list. It's one prepositional phrase after another. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Do it all. Now read it back to me without looking at the paper. Right, this is something that we say, good Lord, there's so much here. And yes, there is. And we have to kind of slow down. And maybe we actually step back. And what are we seeing in general? Is like all of this is how we are with one another. <clears throat> and so he says in verse 14, well, here come the people who curse us. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really cool here. That, that is, let me back up, that... that if you're someone who lives, you're like, you know what, I get it now, and I am devoted in brotherly love. I do think of others as more important than myself. That's give preference to one another. Verse 11, I am diligent. I'm fervent. I serve the Lord. I love hope. I rejoice in it. I have it. When tribulation or pain or trouble comes, I persevere. I do not quit on the spiritual life. I do it, and I'm devoted to prayer. 
We're going to see devotion to prayer again in Thessalonians. Contributing to the needs of the saints? You bet. I give. And when someone needs hospitality, I provide it. What do I get in return? What do we have for him, Johnny? Bless those who persecute you. You mean after I do all that, which you know how many years of spiritual growth that that takes <laughs> to become that kind of person? It takes a long time. I, you know, I hope for I hope for you it doesn't take as long as it seems to be taking for me. But I, I've always been slow at stuff. <clears throat> and what do you get in return? They persecute you. And it's just what Jesus promised. And it's just what the Thessalonians are experiencing. We've seen it. They have been persecuted by their own countrymen. They were pagans yesterday and they're Christians today. And so when their pagan neighbors said, hey, we're going to Aphrodite's festival, aren't you coming? And they're like, eh, we don't do that anymore. What? What are you, better than us? Who do you think you are? We're going to get drunk and high and we're going to have sex with all the prostitutes. Aren't you coming? Uh, No, I'm devoted to Christ now. I don't do that anymore. (laughs) What's wrong with you? Too good for us. They're being persecuted by their neighbors for similar things. So he says, now what do you give in return? Well, when they hand you Caesar's coin, which is persecution, they... You give them what? A blessing. Bless and do not curse. Curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the, and weep with those who weep, by the way, would be you know, comfort the faint-hearted. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind or proud, but associate with the lowly, the weak, the faint-hearted. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Now, you might be wise. Don't think you are. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And there it is. The, uh, the wording is exactly the same as he writes it in Thessalonians. <clears throat> so what are we getting at here? What, let, me fi- let me finish the passage. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, which is very similar to what we'll see. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. See, in Thessalonians, he says, be at peace with everybody. Here, he says, as far as it depends upon you, which I think most of us gravitate towards this one. You know, We're like, hey, you know, this one's really hard to be at peace with, so uh, maybe I can uh, not be at peace. But we are to be at peace with all men. Don't take your own revenge. Uh, so what is this about? This is about creating in the community of believers, which in our case is a local church, an environment of good soil. And the good soil is where everybody can grow. Even the people who have been evil, if they want to, they can't come, they can't come to the church and be evil, right? We don't allow that. That's, that's where you get admonished the unruly. And if that were the case, if someone like came here and going to be like, I'm going to openly do evil to people. I'm going to kick your butt out the door uh, nicely, you know, depending on how big you are. I may ask Alan to kick their butts out the door. 
Alan's packing, so, you know, I'm okay with that. We'll say sick Alan on him. But, you know, what, if a person has been evil and say they want to come and hear God's word, please, please do. What if you've been evil against someone here? Oh, we forgive you. We want you to learn. We want you to grow. Right? And that's what this is about, creating an environment of good soil. A church with good dirt. So, Paul now, uh, if you go back to 1 Thessalonians 5, I'm going to not teach on it anymore. I'm just going to read this last bit and then set you free. Free at last. And I know it's beautiful out there. I did not poke my head out. I've been in the basement all day. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to get out there soon. Therefore, Paul is referring to a consistent attitude in which all of us are occupied with God and with his blessings. So look at verse 16. Rejoice always. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. So there's three things here, three commands, and three adverbs. There are two words each. And always rejoice. The verb comes second, right? So what Paul is emphasizing here is the always, the without ceasing, the everything. He repeats it. It's like he's driving it into our thick skulls. Rejoice when? When things are going good? No, always. How is that possible? Tell me how that's possible. That's why I put these three in a background of fire. I was playing around with my PowerPoint and realized that I can put backgrounds on stuff. Because we're not to quench the Holy Spirit. That's coming next. You can see it in verse 19. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. I can't remotely do any of this without the Holy Spirit. We're going to create good soil in the church by the Holy Spirit. And how are we going to do that? Well, the church is filled with people who are joyful, prayerful, and thankful. And that's what makes a good, that's what makes a church do what it's supposed to do. And all the other stuff before, but if you're joyful, prayerful, and thankful, you're going to be the one who admonishes the unruly, comforts the faint-hearted, and supports the weak. You're going to be at peace with everybody. And you're going to be patient with everybody. And can you imagine such a place where all the people are like that? What does that sound like? It actually sounds like heaven. Heaven on earth. That's what the church is supposed to be. You realize If we were like that, all these lonely people out in the world. I say if we were like that. I'm not saying we're not. But all the, if they knew we were here, all those lonely people out in the world. We're offering them what they want. They want a destiny. They want eternal life. You know, they want it. They want happiness. They want peace. They want a family. There's more isolation and loneliness in our world now than there has ever been. The population of the world has never been higher. We've never been more interconnected, and we've never been more lonely. And so that's what Paul's offering here or telling us. 
that we have to do because these are all commands. Now, we'll return to this tomorrow, um, and we're also going to see, we're going to tackle like this first one, rejoice always. I'm going to pause here, slow down a bit, and we're going to look at, well, we've already studied prayer, so we're going to look at joy and thankfulness, and we're going to see what the Bible says about Not everything, it would take us forever, but we'll look at a a bit, how do I get joy in my life consistently? That's what we'll start to see tomorrow. What does the New Testament tell us about what will give us joy, not intermittently, but consistently? So we will see the secret to perpetual happiness. And the Bible is going to explain that to us, and uh, and and we'll we'll see exactly that this is what the human heart, and every human heart, is longing for. And we we have to create it in the church, a church made of good dirt, good soil. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your the gift of your word, for the revelation of your word. Help us, Father, to. Um, Apply these things to, in prayer, think about those who uh, need to be instructed. And do we have a place to do that, a position to do that? Do those who need comfort, those who need support or help guide us, Father, into knowing if we are at peace consistently and at peace with everyone? And if we're not, and Father, show us how to change that. Do we always rejoice? I know none of us always rejoice, Father. So help us to change and increase the the joy and thankfulness in our hearts as we pray, Father, and learn your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.